0: Welcome to another episode of the Digital Business Models podcast by 4 Week MBA. In this session I'm going to interview Matthew Lysing, reporter at Bloomberg News between 2004 and 2021. He's also the co-founder and now in charge of The Essential Media, who is committing to telling the stories of the founders, builders and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and the internet experience and actually is the author of an incredible book called Out of the Ether this is going to be actually the subject of our conversation the book is called Out of the Ether the amazing story of Ethereum and the the 55 million heist that almost destroyed it all now in this conversation with with Matthew we're going to look at uh, the events, how they unfolded during those times when Ethereum first launched and it launched also through uh, DAO, which is a decentralized autonomous organization, which was one of the core applications for for Ethereum, probably at the time the, the main one and how this actually was hacked and uh, many millions, so 55 million, were actually stolen. So with Matthew we're gonna cover the whole thing, we're gonna look at uh, the all Uh, events, how they unfolded, and this is an incredible story. Thanks Matt for joining this conversation, it's uh, it's a pleasure to to have you here.
1: You're welcome, and thank you very much for uh, asking me to be on.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and thank you for for putting together such a book which is uh, out of uh, uh, the ether. which is the story of the, the, the uh, DAO, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization hack. But it's way more than that. It's the story of Ethereum in the early days, in the early years. It's an incredible story. So the effort that went into the book uh, for the people that will be reading it, uh, it's incredible. So thanks for taking the time. Uh, but so let, let's start from there. What prompted you to, to cover uh, Ethereum uh, and, of course, the the, the DAO hack? and um, we can give a little bit of context probably to the audience.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so I've been a reporter my whole life. Um, a lot of that was spent at Bloomberg News. Um, and I was covering like Wall Street and finance, um, went through the you know um, financial crisis and all of that uh, as a reporter and my beat was market structure. Which is like how do markets work? Um, what's the kind of regulation that, that people are facing? What you know legislation is there? Uh, does this market need to be updated? Um, so I, I was covering that for um, the derivatives market and um, bond the bond market for Bloomberg for many years. So once I finally understood what blockchain technology was, um, I realized it could really change the things that I was writing about. And and this was around the the same time that that Wall Street was starting to wake up to, um, you know, that Bitcoin wasn't just a cryptocurrency. It had this blockchain technology that for the first time, you know, allowed you to to engage in trustless um, transactions with anyone around the world, which was transformative. So that was in 2015. Um, I started covering blockchain as part of my beat they, well, like I said, Wall Street was getting involved. So it was a really good time um to, to write about it because there, there was a lot of interest. And to be honest, not a lot of people knew much about it. So um it was fun to just kind of learn and write as um as I went along. Mm-hmm. So uh that was then then um so it started just with blockchain in general, and then I got uh I Ethereum had just been kind of released in 2015, and I, I didn't start paying attention to it until early 2016 because there was this project uh, that everyone was getting excited about called the DAO. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a decentralized, autonomous organization, and uh, I've written it. You know, that's a terrible name, um, come up by with, by mm-hmm. by coders that is meant to scare children in the night. Um, but basically, what what this was was. Um, In traditional finance, you have venture capital firms that, you know, have money and they want to find um, startups to invest in, to, you know, help them grow their business and get off the ground and then also have an investment stake in these companies uh, that they can then sell um, for lots of profit later. It's a classic Silicon Valley model. Um, And so the DAO was that sort of model, but just in a blockchain form. So what it was was a, a smart contract where you could um, you could send your ether, the cryptocurrency that, that's used in Ethereum is called ether. You send your ether into this contract and you get tokens back. Um, these tokens would then allow you to vote on projects that would make presentations to the members of the DAO. So it's a big pot of money that was meant to help develop uh, startups that were building for the Ethereum ecosystem. So pretty good idea you know not like it's not like it's a new idea but it was a new format and Mm -hmm. what happened was um they raised way more money than they ever thought they would um the people who created it were in germany and they thought maybe five ten million dollars would come in by the time the fundraising stopped it was at 150 million Mm dollars and of course that's that's ether that's in in a contract so it goes up and down as ether goes up and down in value so A few months later, by June of 2016, uh, the, the amount of Ether in, that, uh, in the DAO had risen to about $250 million. So a quarter of a billion dollars was sitting in this smart contract, and it got hacked. Um, there was a lot of security bugs and issues that had been um, already um, pointed out by a lot of people in the industry. But this hack was new, and nobody had um, exactly exploited it until the hackers did. Um, they, they, got away with $55 million and it started this whole big process that I'm sure we'll get into, but, um, that really just grabbed my attention. And, um, I, I ended up writing a magazine story about it, um, and talking to the people involved and the hackers that were, were good guy hackers and bad guy hackers and the good guy hackers all kind of came together and, um, made sure that the rest of the money in a DAO was safe. And, and it was just a fascinating story. And I, I really just loved digging into it. So that's, um, that, that kind of like sent me on my way. And, and I used that magazine story to um, write a book proposal. And that's, that's how I figured, you know, the, DAO, the story of the DAO hack and, and what happened in the aftermath is so dramatic that it would make a great way um, to kind of spread that throughout the book. And then have other chapters about, you know, where did Ethereum come from? Who are the people who invented it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is it? What is it all about? And so that that turned into um, my book, Out of the Ether, um, yeah. and here we are today.
0: Yeah, interesting. And uh, you uh, emphasized an important point, which is uh, the the Dao. It's uh, let's say the beginning of the story as uh, as you tell it, and then it's sort of the end of the story. Of probably Ethereum in the first phase, so Ethereum of the early days, because after that, as we'll see, um, as a consequence of the the actually the DAO, uh, the 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 most important decision that uh, Ethereum had to uh, make going forward. Was whether to to split the 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 blockchain protocol with with a soft or hard fork, and it was an extremely important decision, which changed the way the community would be handled uh, forever. And of course, uh, the the final decision, as we see, was an hard fork, which means that uh, now um, there was a different protocol which uh, went in a different direction, which was Ethereum Classic. But before we get to that, uh, what's uh, the context uh, back then? Um, How did uh, the main character of the story, of course, which is uh, Vitalik Buterin, how did uh, he get to actually create uh, Ethereum in the first place?
1: Yeah, um, so Vitalik is a fascinating person. Um, He's obviously off the charts, smart. um, And one thing that I learned that was really interesting in doing the reporting for the book is I went to his high school uh, in Toronto, uh, where he grew up. And I talked to his teachers, and I talked to the the, the principal of the high school, and I mean, they still had nothing but glowing things to say about him. And, you know, you would imagine he'd be really good in math and, you know, maybe science, and obviously he's a great programmer, but he also excelled in um, Greek and in chemistry and in basically every class he had. Um, and he was going to an elite high school in Toronto for, um, you know, kids who are super smart to begin with because... The public school system just, you know, was was boring to him. It wasn't challenging, so he's like a bit of a Renaissance man. You know, he's also a really good writer. He excelled in English, and so uh, he, 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 you know, he has a very broad educational background. And after his dad introduced him to Bitcoin, um, it, and I think it was, oh, I'm I'm not, not going to say the year because I'm going to get it wrong, but his dad introduced him to Bitcoin, and and Vitalik became fascinated with it, because it, it combined his love of programming and economics and um, uh, math through the cryptography. And so the problem was he was a broke teenager in high school and didn't have any money to buy Bitcoin. So he looked around and, and figured out that he could write about it and get paid in Bitcoin. So he started doing that uh, through a blog called Bitcoin Weekly. And then later, um, after some of his articles got published, uh, a guy named Mihai Alisi uh, mm-hmm. reached out to him and said, hey, let's start a magazine. Uh, and so they started Bitcoin Magazine. Um, and just, you know, the, the articles are still up by, by Vitalik um, on, in Bitcoin Magazine, and, and they're really good. And so he was getting paid in Bitcoin and was, you know, getting to dig into this thing that he loved. Um, but what happened was, um, you know, soon he sort of Realized that Bitcoin was great, but he felt that there was it was limited because mm-hmm. what Bitcoin does really well is it allows you to move value from one point to another. So you and I could be trading Bitcoin, um, you know, between our our wallets uh, anywhere in the world. It's not really built for much more than that. The code is limited, and so after a while, that sort of frustrated Vitalik, and he wanted, you know, he saw the potential of this. Um, underlying global network of computers that it forms a consensus layer and allows decisions to be made, and he thought, you know, I want to do something more with that. So he came up with the idea of Ethereum, which is basically a blockchain network that employs something called a smart contract, which is just a, a bunch of code. Uh, it's just a program, but it now allows you to to kind of do whatever you want. Um, so it of course you can move currency around you can move ether around but you can also create a contract to uh sell a coin to people to raise money um like we were talking about Mm -hmm. called an initial coin offering so if you've got a startup and you want to try to raise money you can do that through ethereum by saying hey here's my idea buy my coin and you'll help me you know that money will help develop the idea and then i'll deploy it to the network um it allowed for NFTs to be created, non-fungible tokens, which, you know, I've been going crazy lately, where it's it's a piece of digital art, or maybe it's a piece of music or a, whatever it is. It's a digitized um, thing that is, is authenticated and validated by the blockchain, which makes it have scarcity. And so it can now be traded and collected and, and have a value um, like anything in the real world. So what he did was sort of like, Give the world a canvas with Ethereum, and then said, "You know, here, paint what you want on this canvas." Um, And so, it it was it was groundbreaking, and and Ethereum has become the um, most used blockchain in the world, and uh, you know, it's 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 been a huge success. Um, And it it really, I think, at its core, kind of goes back to Vitalik's sort of innate um, mastery of all these different subjects that he's so good in, and and it was something that. I think somebody with that temperament, you know, had, had to create.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And uh, for, for a bit of a timeline here, um, the, uh, I, I found uh, the, the wide article, of course, and also reference, I think, in uh, your book, where uh, most probably v- Vitalik Buterin was introduced for, to Bitcoin, at, uh, for sure, in 2011. And the same year he started, uh, as you said, just to give a, li- a little bit of context how things evolved to the, to the audience. So there he started to publish on, on a weekly magazine to earn some money, but to earn actually some cryptocurrency, because he wanted to get involved as much as possible into the, the project. From there, uh, I think the the, the magazine, the, this weekly magazine, at a certain point uh, it went um, um, actually, it, it closed, and so he also later on uh, founded his own uh, his own magazine. And also it's interesting because uh, I believe that the, the first version of the Ethereum white paper would uh, come along around like 2013, uh, and uh, there was really this grandiose idea, uh, as you said, to uh, to build a different kind of blockchain protocol where uh, it was more like uh, the, the most, uh, you know, bad word used, it's uh, work computer. But really, it was more like, uh, let's develop a sort of a, a language instead of applications. So instead of having a sort of thinking process where you develop like APIs. Uh, with those APIs, you can just do limited things. Vitalik Buterin thought, let's uh, develop the whole language. And with this uh, all all sort of language, we can enable uh, anyone to do anything on this top on this on top of this application. And it's very interesting this point because um, Later on in the story uh, and in various interviews of, uh, of Vitalik Buterin, he himself was, uh, was very actually surprised about some of the applications because there are some applications that he was very interested about. And one of those is definitely the the, the DAO, the, the decentralized autonomous organization, and another one it's uh, uh, ENS, so the Ethereum uh, NIM system. Uh, but he was also very surprised uh, by by uh, new applications like NFTs. I mean, probably uh, you also thought those were things that um, were very weird uh, things that. Uh, were created on top of the blockchain, but there was the whole approach, I guess, of uh, Ethereum. So enabling applications, so the platform approach rather than uh, just uh, you know uh, saying this is what the protocol is about, and that's what makes Ethereum very interesting and what also drew me to look into into it a few years ago. Uh, so I wanted to to emphasize this point, and um, another another element is uh, of course about. Uh, Um, again, the evolution of uh, Ethereum uh, and uh, the people that uh, really uh, helped shape it in the early days. Can you tell us a a little bit more about the team also, especially the initial co-founders, what happened there? Because the story is so interesting that it would be nice to uh, dig a little bit deeper into that.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, Vitalik... um wrote his white paper at the end of 2012 and um, sent it out uh, to people. He was, he was, at first he was nervous. He didn't know how it would be, would be received. He was expecting to get, you know, a lot of criticism but actually the opposite occurred. Uh, he got a lot of people saying, you know, this is amazing um, and, and how can I help? So he started gathering people around him um, who would become the co-founders of Ethereum. Um, obviously Vitalik was there. He knew that he needed um, coders to help him um, write the actual code, um, and what he wanted to do from the beginning was write it in different languages, so different um, programming languages, so um, there was, there was going to be the Go client, um, there was going to be Python, and um, I believe it was C was the other one, so um, Gavin Wood um, reached out to him and Jeff Wilkie uh, reached out to him. They, they're both um, brilliant programmers. Um, and so he, they joined the group um, and started writing um, the language, you know the, the Ethereum code in the different languages. Um, of course, you need money for a startup. So um, there were a couple of people uh, who reached out to Vitalik um, that were able to support the project early with their, with their own um, funding. Um, the first was Anthony DiOrio, mm-hmm. who was uh, a Canadian um, entrepreneur and sort of retail, uh, real estate owner, and he had done a lot of things um, in his life. But he had also found Bitcoin quite early and made uh, a lot of money through it. So he uh, got introduced to, to Vitalik through the white paper and, and wanted to join and said, "Hey, you know, I can help fund this, uh, you know, development." The other uh, person with some money uh, was named Joe Lubin. Uh, he uh, had been a software engineer at Goldman Sachs and had run a hedge fund, um, and and was a bit older than than most of the other people in this group. Um, so he had money as well, and and had um, already uh, you know f- discovered Bitcoin and and thought that the decentralized nature of of the network um, that that it enabled was going to change the world. So he was very excited about um, the Ethereum project. Uh, the, there was uh, Mihai Alisi, who uh, was also a co-founder who Vitalik knew, of course, through uh, Bitcoin magazine. Um, they, they were you know, friends. Uh, I would say the only friend that Vitalik had um, in the group was, was Mihai. Uh, there was Charles Hoskinson, who was introduced. Uh, Anthony DiOrio brought Charles in when, because Anthony wasn't too technical, but he knew Charles um, through some work they had done together. And he passed the white paper on to Charles and said, hey, what do you think of this? And uh, Charles um, uh, has, a, has a good background in, in programming and thought that, that it definitely had a, a lot of potential. Uh, Charles, of course, went, went on to um, form Card- Cardano, uh, which we can get onto later. Um, and then the last one was uh, a man named Amir Chetrit uh, who had uh, met Vitalik when Vitalik was traveling through Europe and Israel um, kind of on his journey to understand whether Bitcoin could be changed um, into something that was more flexible or whether, you know, he had to create something new like Ethereum. So I don't think I've forgotten anybody. Uh, Those are the co-founders that um, Vitalik gathered around him and they all met for the first time in Miami in in January about, um, let's see, in 2013. So nine uh, is that nine years ago? Uh, they were there for the Bitcoin uh, North American Bitcoin Conference, where Vitalik presented uh, the Ethereum white paper.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting, and those those uh, are all uh, as, as you also uh, recount in the book. I mean, those are all interesting characters. And um, just to mention a few of them, of course, for instance, as the uh, the example of uh, Charles uh, Oskinson, he uh, would uh, later on develop uh, actually co-found uh, co-found Cardano, and uh, Gavin Wood, which was the main developer. Uh, actually, initially, probably was uh, one of the, the the few developers around, the few technical people around, as he was the one who actually developed from scratch uh, Solidity, which is the the, the main language. Uh, behind uh, the, the, the ethereum protocol uh, still today if you want to build on top of it of course uh, I guess you have to um, to, re- to really program in, in, in the language that uh, Gavin would develop and he later on would also go on and uh, co-found like uh, build up another protocol which is Polkadot. Anyhow, uh, the the way things uh, evolved uh, were quite interesting. And there was uh, initially uh, also a debate, uh, which was about uh, whether to set up the project as a corporation versus a foundation, which I think it's also important because it highlights uh, highlights a little bit the different views between the the various people within the the project.
1: Yeah, that was one of the first sort of sticking points among the group. they they all got together in January for the first time. And then, you know, the conference was a big success and they sort of went their separate ways, um, but agreed to meet up again in a few months uh, when Anthony DiOrio was going to be um, hosting a convention in Toronto for, for blockchain. Um, and so the group came back to, to Toronto in a, in a few months. And the big question was, as you said, do, do they do they want to form a corporation, what they refer to as Crypto Google, or do they want to form a nonprofit, which they called yeah. Crypto Mozilla? Um, Mozilla is the nonprofit, of course, behind the Firefox browser, mm-hmm. um, and so that there was a de- definite split amongst the group. Um, people like Anthony uh, and Charles Hoskinson and Amir Chetrit uh, were, were definitely, you know, interested in in the profit. Potential here, and wanted it to be, you know, the profit to be maximized. Um, Vitalik and Mihai, uh, I think, were definitely uh, more of the foundation, um, you know, nonprofit uh, mindset, and uh, wanted it to be open source, and so that that kind of split the group. Um, uh, but the decision basically was made, um, you know, that they would they would go forward as a as a nonprofit. And so, you know, very early into the project there, there was already sort of like riffs that were appearing and people were, you know, maybe, I think Anthony has said, you know, he, he always thought that, you know, he was in this to, to, to create a company, you know, create a corporation. And he had seen what Bitcoin could do and, and realized that with Ethereum, he was in on the ground floor of something that, you know, he considered to be a billion dollar enterprise, which of course it it is that many times over. Um, So it, 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 but I think Vitalik, you know, held a lot of sway and um, the the idea of of having a foundation and a nonprofit um, won the day. And that's how um, the Ethereum has been uh, ever since.
0: Yeah, this is a very important step and of course among the, the interesting people I forgot to mention also the, the key role that uh, Joe Lubin uh, played because uh, Joe Lubin uh, had the, the, the main role actually was uh, not only was uh, probably the older the, the, the oldest of uh, the group but uh, uh, he was also the, the, more, the, the most of, of them like uh, between them like the one grounded uh, in, in enterprise. So he was also the one who actually started the right on to to enable the, the usage of uh, Ethereum for at enterprise level, something that uh, probably Vitalik Buterin didn't pay attention at in, at initially because of course he had this vision uh, that Ethereum had to uh, democratize and uh, go as uh, wide as possible. But the uh, Joe Lubin vision, especially in the short term, was extremely important as uh, with consensus he started to to, to partner up with the enterprise to actually uh, enable um, the adoption at the enterprise level of a blockchain and this is a very smart move because as we know in many cases when, when new technologies come to market it's very hard uh, for them to prove successful at consumer level right on you want to work first on solidly the enterprise level projects and when these proves to be successful then you can move on and uh, you know go go down the the, the, the supply chain, the, the market, so you can uh, scale up. So definitely, also played a key role. And as you said, the the, the final choice was the foundation because the foundation uh, it was more like uh, we are Mozilla rather than you know we are a corporation like Google. And this was an extremely important point. And the divergence of views between especially uh, Buterin and uh, Oskinson, which wanted the right on, I think, to look for uh, VC and you know investment from venture capitalists, was uh, was a wide divergence which uh, later on would. Uh, also end up uh, in in a bad way for Hoskinson, which, as we'll see, would be uh, let's say kicked out from uh, from the project. Um, what happened in the days going to um, to the crowd sale? And also, um, can you remind us? Really, how Ethereum managed to because that that, that I think that is where also the DAO enters into the picture because Ethereum had to actually go through the crowd sale, so it had to figure out how to sell to the to the public without being also classified as a sort of security. So, how did they do it? What, what happened next?
1: Well, yeah, they <clears throat> the timing on this is funny because. Thought they might be able to do a crowd sale very soon after um the Miami Bitcoin conference. So that would have been January of 2013. Um they quickly learned that you know they there were a lot of security laws to pay attention to, as you mentioned. Um they didn't want to run afoul of the securities and exchange commission in the United States um or you know regulators in Europe. Um they were also looking for a, a, a place to uh, have their headquarters to a jurisdiction, and um, they looked around a few places uh, in, in Europe and, and in Asia, but decided on um, Zug in Switzerland uh, mm. because it's it's got very favorable um, tax laws, and and it was uh, they felt that it was uh, regu- regulatory wise it was a good move. So um, that that's going on at the same time as they're consulting lawyers about what they want to do. Um, you know, this is, this is a role where, you know, Joe Lubin was very important because, you know, he had experience in the business world. Um, Anthony DiOrio was, was involved in this as well. Um, so, uh, basically what they thought would take a couple of weeks ended up taking more than a year, um, because they really, uh, just wanted to get everything in place, um, and on a legal front. And then also, you know, technically um, they were, this was very early in the blockchain space. So you have to remember what they wanted to do was sell, um, they were gonna sell ether coins for Bitcoin um, and the ether would um, be distributed at a later date. So what you had to do was basically um, ensure that the wallet that you're offering, you know, people to send their Bitcoin to is secure uh, mm-hmm. So they had to build a lot of systems from scratch that didn't exist at that point. And that took time as well. And they wanted to do that right. Because, you know, the last thing they wanted was to raise a bunch of Bitcoin to fund Ethereum development and then have it get hacked or to lose it in some manner. Um, so all of that took time and, and I, it was in the summer, I believe that they had a window uh, in 2014 in the in mid 2014, where you could buy, Ether for Bitcoin, and the price started at one one point, and then kind of went up slowly, until the the the, the crowd sale ended. Uh, they ended up raising I think around twenty two or twenty four million dollars, um, and uh, in the crowd sale, and then um, you know it. it and then it wasn't another year until you know then the, the next year was spent. You know really. Diving into the coding and and you know making sure that Ethereum could could launch um, uh, in 2015, which it did. Mm-hmm.
0: There was definitely an intense uh, period, and as you said, uh, it's uh, it's funny to think they they thought already they would do it uh, at the time of the the Miami uh, uh, Bitcoin conference. Uh, instead, it took them uh, quite some time to figure out how to um, to uh, really make make sure they could do the the crowd sale without incurring in, into into legal issues. And um, I guess, uh, of course, uh, one thing that also helped was the fact that uh, Ethereum was considered a sort of uh, utility token. Um, and so uh, through the- well, we
1: yeah, I, I should say um, just to, yeah, it, it's funny the the SEC did come out later and say that they thought ethereum was a security mm-hmm. uh you know but they didn't they chose not to do anything about it um one reason they've they've said that they've given for that is they, they think that it, it became sufficiently decentralized um over time um another funny thing about the crowd sale is uh you know they had all this bitcoin and uh they didn't um, they didn't hedge the, the money they raised they kept it in bitcoin and bitcoin was actually falling at that time at, at the end of um 2014 it, it dropped quite a bit by almost by half I think so they they um they lost quite a bit of the money that they raised by not selling their Bitcoin. Um, there, there's wow. definitely uh Joe mm-hmm. Lubin was involved here and he you know he's a staunch believer in Bitcoin and in crypto and and wanted to keep it in, in Bitcoin. Um, okay when Vitalik kind of found out about that, he's like, no, we, you know, we got to stop these losses. So the, he got involved and they started selling so that they, um, they eventually ended up with somewhere, I think 12 to $14 million was kind of what they were left with uh, to fund the project after, you know, ha- having raised somewhere around 22 to 24 million. Wow.
0: And um, at, at that point who where the people around the project, like uh, from the initial people that we saw before, who Was left uh, after the, the crowd sale.
1: Well, so we skipped over a big point in the early history. Um, exactly. it, it was yeah. So after the decision to go nonprofit, um, you know, like I said, rifts had started to form. Um, there, uh, you know, because none of these people knew each other. Uh, the only people who knew each other, I well, I shouldn't say that. The group didn't know each other. Um, you know, Charles and Anthony knew each other, and of course. Um, Vitalik knew um, Mihai,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but the group dynamic was starting to kind of uh, develop where, where um, Gavin Wood um, in particular was, was upset that there were people who were non-technical in leadership roles. He thought that the, the project should be run by the people writing the code. Um, I, I, Anthony DiOrio you know, was, was upset with the decision to go um, in, a, in a nonprofit direction Um, Amir Chetrit was um, kind of not, people didn't really know what he was doing. Um, He was involved with a project in Israel, and he seemed more dedicated to that. Um, And at one point, uh, at least one point, he said to people directly, you know, I'm I'm in this for the money, um, which didn't sit well with the other Mm -hmm. co-founders. Charles Hoskinson uh, was was one of the younger members of the co-founding team, and he... Uh, has a way of kind of rubbing people the wrong way a lot of times. Uh, he he was telling people um, that he was Satoshi Nakamoto, the inventor of Bitcoin. Um, he was trying to convince people of that. He he would tell stories that he had um, ties to the CIA, uh, that he had a limp uh, in his leg from um, jumping out of a, a Black Hawk helicopter in Afghanistan. Um, you know, obviously none of this was true, and and so. The group and the people around the, you know, the group sort of just were feeling uneasy about that. And um, so everything kind of came to a head uh, in, in the summer of um, 2013. Um, they had their headquarters in Zug and they had a, a big house um, that they were renting. It was a very luxurious house, had an elevator in it. And um, you know, it, was, it was large and modern. And that, that was another point of contention. Uh, Anthony Diorio was, was in Toronto and felt like that the, there was a developing rift between the people in Toronto on the Ethereum team and the people in Switzerland. So basically Vitalik called um, a meeting uh, of everyone and, and they all gathered uh, in, in the Zug house um, and had a long meeting where everybody gathered around a table and everybody kind of aired their grievances and, and, you know, they didn't mince words, as I was told by, by the people who were around that table. And basically, the, the only pe- person that everyone trusted was Vitalik at that point. So he had a decision to make and he went out on the balcony and paced around for quite a while before coming in and announcing that um, he was firing uh, Charles Hoskinson and Amir Chetrit. Um, so they would no longer be co-founders. Um, they they got very nice uh, uh, exit packages, I guess you could call them. They, they, it was uh, several hundred thousand Ether were, were promised to them for their efforts um, for, you know, six months of work, so it wouldn't feel too bad for them, but it did, you know, kind of, it was the first sort of personnel shakeup in, in the Ethereum group, um, and, and there would be many more to come, and you know, so only six months into the project, there was already a lot of personal um, politics involved and sort of uh, maneuvering. And and this was all something that was very new to Vitalik um, and, and to quite a few of the other members who didn't have a lot of experience um, in the business world at that point in their careers.
0: Yeah, and uh, also it's uh, worth uh, pointing out they were all very young. I mean, they were all very young people. Also Vitalik probably at the time had probably 19, 20 years old um, and so it was not an easy decision to make for Vitalik at the time. And on the other side, um, this sort of uh, paranoia which developed for that, some of the team members like Hoskinson as well was also the result, I guess, of uh, many young uh, dudes living all together for many months in a very intense period where, yes, there were like uh, very few technical people doing uh, doing. Uh, the actual work like getting wood but then there were also many other who were doing other stuff which was way more uh, way less technical and this points out a very important point that uh, we're going to probably look at uh, see later especially when it comes to Gavin Wood and the play and the, the role that he played later on but how did the, then we um, how did we go to the hack what happened next so ethereum goes to the uh, crowd uh, sale. it is very successful. One of the most successful ones, I guess, um, on the uh, uh, you know, on uh, since Bitcoin, actually, even more successful, I guess. Of Dogecoin, it's interesting. The point you know that, that uh, they lost money by having the the, the money locked uh, into Bitcoin for a while. Um, what happened next? Uh, how did the hack happen? Was there uh, also sort of um, uh, intrinsic uh, weakness of the code, what happened there?
1: Uh, yeah, so um, yeah, the crowd sale happened in the summer of 2014. Um, mm-hmm. By late August, I think it was late August 2015, Ethereum was ready to go live. They were done with the coding. They had done a lot of work. Um, uh, Gavin, Jeff, and Vitalik all um, had been uh, in Berlin together, um, kind of testing and, and making sure that, um, the clients, you know, the thing is when you write in different computer languages, you need them to, to talk to each other. And one, you know, one client has to understand that this, this message is exactly the same from another client and they have to agree on everything. So it takes a lot of testing and, and working out bugs and things like that to, to get them all on the same page. So uh, August, 2015, they, they launch it and, um, <clears throat> it's, you, I, you so now it's live. And <laughs> so what do you do next? Well, there wasn't a whole lot of, of, of projects in the early days. Um, and so, uh, Ethereum just sort of, you know, kind of cruised along for the, the, the rest of that year, um, tw- towards the end of 2015. But, um, there was, uh, a, a developer uh, who worked on Ethereum was named Christoph Jens, and he was the guy that um, would he he was basically uh, testing the code um, that, that Gavin and Jeff <clears throat> and um, Vitalik was writing, and he'd try to like he'd try to break it, you know. He'd try to like he, so he was a very very smart developer and smart coder, and was helping to make sure that the that the code that these guys were writing was was good and and, and solid, and so. He, he had an idea um, to use Ethereum to create a kind of um, smart lock is what they called it. Uh, so it's a it would be a lock, like let's say on a bike that would be um, connected to the Ethereum blockchain. And if you're, say you're in Amsterdam and you wanna get a bike, uh, you, you come up to this bike and it's on the street and you scan a QR code and that takes you to the Ethereum blockchain and you deposit a little bit of ether into that contract um it gets processed and then the the lock on the bike now opens you can take the bike and ride around amsterdam for say like an hour or two hours whatever you paid for so he had this idea he had gone he started um, developing it and went around to people uh everyone was very interested um seemed like a great kind of um application to use um, ethereum for so of course like any startup he needed money to develop the project and so he uh was thinking about like, how do I, you know, how do I develop, <clears throat> or how do I raise money? Mm. Uh, and he, as he was thinking it through, he he realized that everybody that he knew in, in Ethereum, who was trying to build these new applications was in the same boat, you know, they all needed money. So rather than every one of those different startups raising money on its own, he thought, why don't we make this one thing that can raise a whole bunch of money for everybody? And then Projects, you know, will get chosen to to for funding by by a voting mechanism, and that was his early idea for the DAO. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was at Slocket, it was the name of the company that was developing a smart lock, and um, they basically put the idea for the DAO together, uh, released that to the community, and um, it, it was you know widely popular because everybody saw the utility and having like one common fundraising tool. And so, again, like I said at the beginning, uh, they they started raising money. They got way more money than they ever thought they would. Um, and and Christoph was was terrified of this because, you know, it was his code, it was his project, and and he was just really worried that something was going to go wrong. So, what happened was, um, while there were many bugs that were pointed out in the DAO code prior to it going live, um, there were there were fixes that were made, but. Um, the project kind of had too much momentum I think is, is the way people characterize it now for anyone to try to say hey let's take let's take a break let's fix this code and make sure that it's perfect before we we um, go live with it. That didn't happen and there was a bug in, in the code that Christoph wrote. Um, incredibly enough, it comes at line 666 in the, in the code um, for the, the DAO contract, um, which was a, de- a detail that I, I could not believe was true when I found that out. Um, and, and what it allowed to, uh, if, if you knew how to exploit it, it basically allowed an attacker to come in and, and take money out of the, the big pot of money and then recycle it. Um, so that you could then do that attack again and kind of come back over and over again to, to, to drain money out of the DAO. Um, it's a very elegant attack and I, I go into quite a bit of detail in the book about it. Um, it's, a, it's a two-stage attack. And um, what was fascinating is that the way the DAO code was written by Christoph was if you wanted to leave, like let's say you had bought DAO tokens and, and you know were, wanted to participate, but then for whatever reason, wanted to get your money back and you just like you were like i you know not just for whatever reason you wanted to 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 leave the dow you could but there was a process you had to go through where um there was a number of days you had to wait to to sort of get your money out of the dow and so the attacker the hacker who who Exploited the bug, had to go through the same process. So, they basically had um, somewhere right around 30 days where the money was sitting in a contract, still within the Dow, where but the, the attacker couldn't get that out until um, you know 30 some days later. So, it's it's one of those little quirks that I found so fascinating in this story was like you know you basically robbed the bank, but you're sitting there in the bank for like a month you know, before you can go and get in your getaway car and, and drive off. Um, so <laughs> this quirk of the code gave the Ethereum community time to kind of decide what to do about the fork, or excuse me, about the hack. And, and it allowed like the, the money wasn't actually gone yet. So it, it, other kind of famous or uh, fascinating details to me that makes this like no other heist that I've ever kind of come across.
0: Yeah. And uh, th- there was nothing also that they could do actually to stop it at that point. Once, uh, once the money was uh, ready to go out, even uh, if the hacker uh, was supposed to wait, still there was nothing that uh, the... the the. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's one thing that made Christoph
1: so nervous was he knew once he put the code out into the world for the Dow contract, it's very hard to change that code. Um, you, you basically have to get the community and everyone who's running the code on their computers to, to do an upgrade or an update and, and change the, the, the code. and that's, that's very difficult. Um, it, it takes a lot of time. and so if there's a hack, you know, you can exploit that hack within hours, whereas you know to change the, the bug in the, in the software would take you know, days or weeks or maybe even months. So that they really were kind of, they had their hands tied behind their back uh, about fixing the bug. And what they actually did, the good guy hackers who came in to secure the money that hadn't been stolen, that was remaining in the DAO contract, they used the same flaw in the code to get the money out. <laughs> so <laughs> the, that that they basically went on Twitter and said, "Hey, we're draining the DAO. Don't panic. You know, it's we're good guys." And and, and so,
0: what's the group called? Like the group of guys that uh, the, the, the yeah,
1: they, they, um, yeah they called themselves the the Robinhood group. Yeah. um because they that, that was the name they gave themselves uh in the chat group that that formed on the day of the hack to kind of coordinate this because you had people in in germany you had people in in the uk you had people in brazil you had people all over the world and so they had to coordinate through a a, a chat and uh yeah they so they came to be known as the robin hood
0: group hmm. uh, also um crazy story so far but uh um, couple of things. So one is, uh, you said that the, the main flow was really not on the, uh, let's say, on the on the uh, the language of, of Ethereum, which was Solidity. was mainly on the way it was used actually to to uh, build the DAO. Right? I mean, it was mainly a flow. yeah. Okay, yeah, that's right.
1: Um, so Solidity is what um, is is the the code that smart contracts are written in. So the DAO contract is written in solidity um of course then underlying uh, the ethereum network is you know written in the different languages that i've mentioned like um you know today it's like geth is, is a big one it's the go client um, you know there's there's other languages that actually are, are the infrastructure layer of of the blockchain so the the problem with the dao was not in ethereum itself it was in the smart contract so the bug was in The code of the smart contract that Christoph created um, to run the DAO, yeah.
0: So it was not like uh, the the underlying infrastructure was compromised. It was more like the layer on top of it, which was the DAO, was actually compromised. Yeah, and And we've
1: seen that in many other smart contracts over the years. You know, there there have been many bugs that have been exploited by people um, for various means. Um, So, and and it's. I can't think of an example when Ethereum itself was the problem. It's always a smart contract that runs on top of Ethereum.
0: Yeah, and that's, of course, still today one of the key issues of developing blockchain protocols because there is this trilemma where you try to balance out, of course, security and and privacy with scalability and uh, like blockchain protocols like bitcoin or ethereum uh, you might uh, like them or not but especially ethereum it's uh, it's a lot uh, focused on uh, on two sides for now which uh, which are uh, security and decentralization and now it's tackling like uh, scalability with uh, with the, uh, ethereum uh, 2.0 but uh, uh, this is very important uh, what you said because uh, uh, when we start building out things which uh, are outside the main uh, blockchain protocol, uh, security uh, becomes uh, speed becomes uh, possible, but uh, then uh, it also a little bit compromises security. So that's why also the main data usually it sits on top of the main uh, blockchain protocol, and then. On the additional, like uh, outside layers, usually we bring things that are not, uh, uh, you know, uh, critical for the, I guess for the for the functioning of uh, of the applications that we're building. And also, there is another uh, important uh, uh, point here. You said it was a two stage attack, so it means that, uh, of course, one, one reason probably was because they needed to wait before they could launch another attack and drain more money from the DAO. But uh, do you think like, uh, it's possible that uh, this attack was uh, made by uh, two different people or group of people? Uh, or was it the same, uh, was done by the same person or group of, of people?
1: Um, well, yeah, that, that, so that's a good question. Um, the, one thing that i didn't know before i really dug into this for the book was that um there were several different hacks of the DAO. the first one is the one that everyone knows about and that i've been describing and that was on a friday in june of 2016. that's where 55 million dollars was stolen through um this two and what i mean by a two-stage attack is like um you have to fund your everything has to be funded uh in a blockchain transaction on ethereum so what, what the attack did was it, it took money out of the DAO, um, you know, the big pot of money that the Dow held. It took, took money out, but then um, used a little bit of it to to fund the next hack uh, the next, you know, the next time that the money would be taken out. So in the book I write about it, like it's kind of like you go to the bank and you go to the first teller and you say, I'd like a hundred dollars. And before they give you the hundred dollars, you go to the next teller and you say, I want a hundred. And you do that again all the way down the down the, for ten tellers, so and then at the end you get your money, you get your thousand dollars, but in your bank account you actually only had a hundred. So that that's sort of the analogy um, that I've used to describe how that hack worked. Um, and so um, the and then I'm sorry, remind me of the the question after yeah, that. Yeah.
0: So uh, w- was it uh, interesting analogy? Oh, right, right. The people. Yeah. yeah
1: so I think. Um, and and I got a lot of help in the book on this from blockchain forensics people because I'm not an expert at this at all, but I had a lot of experts who were really good at this, helping me and looking at the code. And what what I found was um, the original hack um, was very elegant and and was done by somebody or a group of people who really knew um, the ins and outs of Solidity and and how to um, orchestrate this this hack. Uh, Once that attack contract is launched, however, it's, it's public. And you can, if you know what you're doing, you can go and click on the contract and you can see where the money is going into, you know, out of the DAO into this attack contract. And, and you can see the code of the attack contract. So now if you're, if, if somebody wanted to come along and basically just copy, you know, copy and paste that code into a new smart contract, uh, to attack the Dow, they could, so that's what the the Robin Hood group knew you know they knew that this was now a publicly um, known exploit in the Dow and that they knew that that either the original attacker or a copycat could come back at any time and start draining more money out of the Dow hmm. um, so that's why they were worried and so what I think is um, I think the first attack was done by by one group and it, it was um, One thing that I found really interesting was when I showed the code to people, um, they just thought it was very elegant and it was really nicely put together and it looked nice. And then there was a second hack that started um, on the Tuesday after that original Friday attack. And this one, if you look at the code used on this one, it's it's not, it's not pretty. (laughs) It's got a bunch of returns in it and it just, it looks sloppy. And I I, had never thought of code like that, you know, but these, these folks who look at, at smart contracts it's, all the time. Like for We're you just... looking
0: at, it's like for you looking at uh, at an article. I mean, uh, you you know as a writer, you know which article is going to be written next. Yeah, is yeah, there.
1: exactly. If if the yeah. format formatting's all off and yeah. you know like the font is changing and whatever. Also so, the, the style, the grammar, <clears and everything,
0: throat> things. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that one to me and and to other people who are much smarter about this than I am. You know, it all seemed like this was a copycat attack, mm. and that that's one. Area that I was able to follow um, in the book, and I, I think I was able to I was able to find somebody who was involved in that that a copycat attack on the Tuesday, um, and and because another thing the the attackers on on the Friday attack were they covered their tracks really well they it's it's basically impossible to um, you know without law enforcement or a subpoena uh, you know power to to find. to to trace where they like took them like how they got the money into the contract and all sorts of things like they were very they were very um good at at covering their tracks the 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 person who did the copycat attack was not um, i was able to sort of follow the steps they took uh with some help um from some people uh who i spoke to and and kind of figure out okay this this seems to be where the money came from um, to fund the, the second attack. Because as I've said, you, you always have to pay for transactions on Ethereum. And so you can kind of look at where does the funding for this contractor originally come from? And that's one of the cool things about blockchain is it's publicly available and you can see, oh, here's the first transaction. Now I can backtrack and go, where did that come from? And I can backtrack it from there. And so you can look like kind of like hops, skips and jumps to, Um, And and you can kind of follow the trail, so to speak. So I was able to do that um, during the book, which was a lot of fun.
0: Wow. (laughs) And also, um, eventually, did you manage, because uh, you went through, as you explained in the book, you you went through uh, such an investigation. uh, And did you eventually manage to understand if there was like um, a person that... uh, um uh, was was in charge of these of these attack
1: yeah I, so again i don't n- nobody that i know of knows who did the original attack on friday um the, the one that i think was you know was, was very elegant and and very smart whoever did that the i think i found some links to somebody who was involved in the second attack on tuesday mm. uh and i write about it in the book um and I met that person in Tokyo and interviewed him. and I'll let readers, you know, check it out because yeah. it was a very interesting conversation. And you know, I'm only a reporter, so I could only ask questions. And I left that meeting with the person, you know, sort of, you know, I'm not sure. his answer <laughs> was was very interesting to me, um, but definitely not definitive. Um, I'm not sure that I expected. Anyone to confess to me, but you know, uh, again, I'll leave it up to, to people to read in the book because I think it's one of the more interesting parts, and yeah. I don't want to spoil it.
0: Yeah, also because if uh, let's say if this this person was uh, acknowledging it in any in any case was acknowledging probably a second copycat attack. So anyhow, it's still uh, still a very bad thing to do, but uh, not the original tagger, which uh, probably. <laughs> It was the most worrying one because we can imagine that uh, the first attack was done by very smart people. They knew what they were doing. It, it, it's possible to speculate also that uh, if they knew uh, from the inside out, also the the, the main language, uh, you know, they have been very close to 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 the project or in the community, you know. So, so it, <laughs> there are many speculations. Yeah,
1: that, that's that's a really interesting point at that point in, in time uh the people who understood solidity at the at this level to do that attack uh it was a small group of people you know there's maybe a couple dozen around the world tops you know so i find that really just fascinating and i i'd love to know who actually did it i i really i i don't still and it still kind of bothers me but um yeah. So it's, this it's may just...
0: be this may be actually the right angle for the sequel. So start with uh, was the <laughs> the attacker yeah. and move forward on how Ethereum evolved after that. Yeah.
1: If the, the attacker is listening to this and they want to reach out to me, I, I, I can protect your I can protect your identity. Don't worry. <laughs>
0: you you're going to say this is just for the sake of starting the other book so <laughs> that would be a good uh, a great thing actually so uh, to to uh, go uh, close uh, and to go um, uh, you know forward and, and close this up as you know what time is due i don't know how long uh, you can stay but um, w- what happened next so uh, how did eventually uh, ethereum and uh, you know vitalik buterin uh, solve uh, the, the situation um, so what happened
1: Right, so now we're at the point where the hack has happened, and there's that fifty-five million dollars that's sitting, um, you know, still in the DAO. But the attacker can't get the money out for something like thirty-two days, and the, this this group of white hat hackers, the Robin Hood group, gets together. Um, they are nervous about using the same exploit as the attacker because you know they they don't know if that's going to be kind of like seen as breaking the law. They don't know the legal ramifications of it. They also know, on the other hand, like I've said, the attack contract is public, and somebody could come along and and try it again and and steal more of the money, which they definitely did not want. So they were ready to kind of push the button on their own um, method of, of of draining the Dow, but they they waited until uh, the uh, the second hack began on Tuesday, and it wasn't until then that they. Went into action and and launched their own attack, um, and it, it's kind of technical, but they they had an ability to drain the money out of the DAO way faster than um, anybody else. They they had amassed a whole bunch of DAO tokens, and it just made it easier for them to get the money. So they were able to safely drain the the remaining funds um, within hours of the second attack beginning. So now um, that's also in a, in a in a contract in the Dow and, and so, but, but the money is safe for now. Um, and then the broader Ethereum community. So that was all happening kind of behind the scenes a little bit, um, or if you're you you know you were paying attention during this time on Twitter and on Reddit, you know, you could have seen, you could have been a part of this conversation, but the broader community also had to make a decision about like, what do we do about this hack? Um, they had, a Few different choices, and the, the first one that you mentioned was a soft fork, which is basically a bl- you would blacklist uh, the address that the uh, attacker used, and and like try to um, censor any transactions and basically freeze freeze that stolen ether in place so it could never be moved. This um, was quickly re- quickly realized that 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 would have ramifications throughout the whole network, and it wouldn't be. It would not be a good solution so the other option is called a hard fork uh, which is is more serious and it's basically where you changed um, you change the underlying blockchain uh, here what it would, what it would do what was proposed was the hard fork would um, you would update the ethereum software that you run on your computer uh, and, and this is how the, the network works people are running the ethereum code on their computers all over the world. And those computers make up the uh, blockchain network. So every so often, of course, you have to update your code, right? So the hard fork idea was, okay, we're going to write an update. And in this update, the only thing that we're going to change is we're going to change the DAO contract, uh, the block that holds the DAO contract to get rid of the DAO and basically change the program, the smart contract there. So The only thing it does is that if you have DAO tokens, you can now send your DAO tokens to this contract and get the ether back that um, you originally sent in to receive the DAO tokens. So I think a lot of people misunderstand this and they think that Ethereum changed the whole history of the blockchain with the hard fork, and that's not true. Um, That would have been impossible, um, first of all. and, And second of all, all that they wanted to do was to to fix the DAO bug. Uh, there wasn't really anything else that was needed fixing. So, what you do then is um, basically you have to kind of get everybody on board to do that, to because everyone has to update their software at the same time so that the new version, you know, now has that DAO contract where only thing you can do is go get your money back. Um, so. They they spent weeks, you know, kind of t- debating it and talking to people about it. Vitalik was in favor of it. A lot of people were in favor of it as well. And but originally, and then ultimately, what it came down to was a vote by the people who were running the software on their computers. And when the time came, um, several weeks after the, the attack, to to do the hard fork, basically every um, everybody in the network uh, updated their software. Uh, so now the hard fork was a success, and they had sort of changed the history of the DAO, but none of the other transactions in the in the history of the Ethereum blockchain were were altered. Yeah. So it was all a big success, and everybody thought that they were you know they were celebrating and everybody was happy. Um, it, it basically meant that the attacker you know had all his money taken back, so what he stole was kind of stolen back from him by the community changing the blockchain, um, and everything seemed fine, but. Then people notice something weird um, a day or so after the attack, or I'm sorry, after the hard fork. The um, the way I so the, the way to visualize this is like a tree branch, and you know a hard fork is like a new branch that that splits off to the right. Mm. And what you hope for in that case is that there's the old the old network branch, and then the new branch is the hard fork, and it just keeps growing to the right. Um, what can happen in a blockchain though is uh, at that point where it splits, you can the, the branch can keep growing straight, and so what what it, what what has to happen for that to to occur is somebody has to keep mining transactions on the old network, and they have to keep paying to um, to publish blocks, and and it's oftentimes very uneconomic. It's it's very costly, mm-hmm. and um, you know it's not something that people do, right? But in this case, it it happened, and this this is where the story gets even weirder. So everybody, I said, everybody upgraded their software. That's not entirely true. There was a mining pool in China um, that didn't, Uh, it was called F2 pool. Um, I believe they're still around today. They stayed on the same, uh, they stayed with the network where the DAO hack was possible, where the bug was still in the DAO hack. And somebody kept mining blocks on that old chain, on the original Ethereum chain. And it kept growing and growing. And then all of a sudden uh, there was two chains and in and, and a blockchain, you know, that, that you don't want that to happen because it, it's very confusing because a blockchain needs to have one record of transactions that uh, everyone agrees upon. And if you have this fork, it gets confusing. So basically this new fork that kept growing straight and had the DAO bug in it still uh, was named Ethereum Classic and the fork part of the network of the chain was just is is what we call ethereum today so hopefully i haven't lost you yet but the other thing that happens when you have this new fork or or excuse me the original fork that keeps growing is ethereum classic now is a blockchain that you have to use ether on for transactions so it has an inherent value Mm -hmm. and this new coin was called ethereum classic and suddenly um, it it you if you had, um, if you had any ether in your account at the time of the hard fork, you now had the, the same number of Ether Classic tokens. Mm-hmm. And so, within a couple of days, uh, an exchange here and an exchange there started listing Ethereum Classic for trading on their exchange, giving you know helping to to give a value to this new coin. And so uh i know that's a lot to digest and i'm i'm going to stop here to see if you have questions yeah, um, yeah, but absolutely. it's it's like, yeah. it's kind of beyond sci-fi you know it's just wow yeah uh,
0: incredible and uh, let me uh, take a bit uh, some steps back and we move forward and one interesting note is uh, i was looking as we were talking at the the market capitalization of ethereum classic which was uh, the 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 blockchain that came up as a result of the, the artwork. fork Today it's about two point nine billion uh, and we are in January of twenty twenty two so interesting to notice that this has survived and as you said, it doesn't always make sense because when you do the the artwork in order for the 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 uh, what remains of that uh, to survive is actually to have also a group of people that is going to maintain that and it's not intuitive the fact that ethereum classic uh, actually survived as a result of uh, the split. And another another key point also to highlight is that uh, uh, when, uh, As you said, the main difference between the software the soft work and the artwork is that the software uh, uh, only uh, probably changes uh, uh, going forward as you need to update with the new rules. The artwork is interesting because it removes from the past, uh, in this case, the DAO. So it's not like, as you said, it changed the whole history. It just changed uh, one aspect, which was important, which was the DAO hack. So it removed from the history of that so, so that it could uh, start fresh again. That's pretty much what they wanted to achieve. But of course, to achieve that, that to do it uh, through uh, by achieving a community consensus. Because let's remember, uh, like blockchain uh, protocols are more similar to open source software, where uh, there is a group of people developing it and a group of people that handle it. And so, you need to reach consensus. And of course, Vitalik Buterin was a key figure uh, around the project, so people trusted him. But it was not intuitive at all to solve the issue with the, with the artwork. It was not a simple choice, and as you said, the other the other point it's about Ethereum Classic, uh, how it uh, survived, and uh, we had a sort of two parallel histories: one with the Ethereum without the DAO hack, and uh, another one which is Ethereum Classic, which is Ethereum with the DAO hack. So. Yeah, yeah. Going to the to close this up, uh, what happened next to the co-founders, especially uh, because Hoskinson was out okay and he would later uh, also found um, Cardano, but especially wood uh, Gavin Wood which had played such a key role. What happened next? Uh, there was an important uh, I think um, point in in which he um, you know uh, split from from the project and uh, started to work on 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 his own. what happened there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Gavin was um, instrumental in the Ethereum project because what he did was he took Vitalik's um, white paper, which you know Vitalik had worked out some things, some some details. But it, it what it needed to what what needed to happen was the next step was writing a technical spec, basically, um, so that anybody could come along and and figure out how to work with Ethereum and and create their own node, for example, and so that's what gavin did and it's called the yellow paper um, so it's basically the 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 kind of the technical owner's manual for ethereum and he wrote that and and it's incredibly you know you definitely need to be a computer scientist and a programmer to understand it it's not it's not something for lay people to sit back and read um, so he's he's obviously brilliant and i think um he you know i do think he wanted um to have more control, like he 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 always, you know, as I've said, didn't think that the, the the group should include people, you know, the leadership group of Ethereum should include people who weren't technical. So he he left uh, eventually and um, started uh, working on <clears throat> his own project, uh, which today is, is Polkadot, mm-hmm. and it's it's a smart contract uh, based um, blockchain. Uh, it, it's got you know different features um, than Ethereum today. Um, it, it's it's faster. I believe it's on proof of stake already instead of proof of work, and and so and it's you know it, it's one of the, the people call them Ethereum killers. I don't really subscribe to that. Uh, I think it's it's definitely there. There's enough room for a lot of different blockchains in the world, and so I just consider Polkadot to be you know an alternative. Um, Similar to Solana, or you know, take your pick. Um, so, but yeah, he so he went on to some some great success and and took took a while to um, to develop and and perfect um, Polkadot, but but it's it's out there now and people are using it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, and uh, to recap a little bit what we said so far, so the the history of uh, Ethereum is so interesting because again. was so intense. And the way uh, also they figured the things out on the fly uh, was not uh, because now other, uh, let's say, layer one uh, protocols have uh, spurred up, especially in the last uh, two, three years. But when Ethereum did uh, actually uh, was built up, uh, it was the first protocol to try to do something completely different from it, from, from uh, Bitcoin. So these are the most important aspect. Of course, there was a team of people behind, the very smart people, interesting people, um, also characters that uh, eventually clashed also because they had a different kind of philosophy on how to handle the project. As we saw, uh, Vitalik Buterin was for having it as a foundation. Uh, Oskinson wanted to go more in the path of uh, setting things up more like a corporation. And then also going forward, there was also this division between like the the very technical people like Wood who were working uh, on a project which is extremely technical. So as you said, he needed to have technical people as the main uh, founders of the project. Uh, against, like, uh, the, the, the rest uh, who were not really technical people. And then we had this scenario where they figured out how to, to launch when they thought they could launch, actually, at uh, the time of the, the Bitcoin conference in Miami um, around 2013. Actually, they couldn't. They needed to wait for understanding how, from a legal standpoint, they would actually do the crowd sale. The DAO was one of those elements that helped them uh, really go through this process, but it was eventually acted. So uh, they solved it with the hard fork, and then going forward, of course, uh, we saw the BERT, also another protocol, which is Ethereum Classic, which is uh, which has nothing probably of interesting, if not that it's the fact that uh, it contains the whole history of Ethereum, but with the DAO hack instead. If we look at the, uh, the Ethereum today, uh, since it was an artwork, it removed from from the history the the hack itself. So that's more. It's interesting because at least it has an historical value uh, going forward. The, the Ethereum Classic, because it's going to tell us the, the history of uh, of the hack. And uh, yeah, to close this up, uh, what's uh, what's next for you? Like, are you planning a sequel, or at least uh, what's interesting for you to uh, for you in the in the ecosystem, the crypto ecosystem?
1: Yeah, um I so I uh I left Bloomberg News last year in September and I started my own crypto media company called Decentral. Mm. Um it's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L dot I O. Um so my co-founder and I um he's a filmmaker and in documentary filmmaking. And we, we realized that um, you know, the way I tried to write the book was by telling like really telling the stories of the people who, who were so fundamental, like Vitalik and Joe Lubin and, and Charles Hoskinson and, and, and tell this complicated story through the characters and through the, the people mm-hmm. and the challenges and the, you know all the, the, the successes and the failures and all that. And so I think that's a great way to approach crypto in general. And, and so at Decentral, that's what we're working on now is really just focusing on telling the stories of the people who are building web three and the people who are you know building you know the, the nft world and and all the different projects that you're seeing now um from from DeFi to um you know the new crop of DAOs that are coming out today so it's it's very character driven and and very much uh, we want to humanize um this this industry because we feel like a lot of times the, there's too much attention to the technical details and to the technology, and it, it kind of can scare people away. Yeah. Whereas if you tell the story through the, the characters and the people, then it's very engaging. And I think it helps people understand it uh, at, at a more, uh, at a, at a, on an easier level. So I don't have a a sequel in the works. Uh, I, I think, you know, uh, I'm devoting all of my attention and energy right now to the and just trying to get this off the ground. Um, but hopefully, uh, I, I loved writing the book and it was the funnest thing I've ever done in my career. So I definitely would like to do that again. Um, I just, I, I just have to find a topic that, uh, <laughs> is as fascinating as this one
0: yeah uh, if you find the 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 person in, uh, who was behind the hack i think it's going to be as we said a good yeah. uh, starting line anyhow yeah. a, a very interesting uh, um, the project uh, the new project uh, and uh, I agree like uh, telling those technical stories uh, by explaining actually the characters behind them it's the the most important way to bring as many people on, on board on those kind of, uh, of projects. So yeah. thanks for taking the time the time to go through so many details, uh, and thanks for putting together the book because it's a huge uh, huge work. Uh, it was yeah. fun, but huge work, I guess. So.
1: Uh, well, thank you, Gennaro. I really appreciate you taking the time, and it's really fun to talk to somebody uh, with a, a good understanding of all this, like you. Uh, it's it's it makes it just a lot more fun
0: to have this kind of conversation. Absolutely, it was my pleasure. Thank you. <music>